Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of selections, and I use it on just about a daily basis for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 86 of History of the Marine Corps. Marines Prepare for War. Our last episode finished the introduction of World War I. We spent some time going over the Schlieffen Plan and discussed very high-level engagements happening in Europe. We also introduced a few events that resulted in the United States declaring war on Germany. This episode digs into how the Marine Corps started to prepare for war. We cover a lot in this episode, from recruit training to naval activity in Europe, early aviation, and we even introduced chaplains and corpsmen serving with Marines. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. When Congress enacted the Naval Act of 1916, the Marine Corps had a strength of 354 officers and 10,727 enlisted. In anticipation to sending troops to Europe, Major General Commandant George Barnett committed two regiments of Marines to the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, for service with the American Expeditionary Force. The Commandant was confident that he could double the strength of the Marine Corps in a year. He laid out a straightforward reason for his confidence and said, quote, The Marine Corps was practically on a wartime basis at all times. That its war procurement had been perfected for purchase, delivery, and inspection of stores. Unquote. But despite the Commandant's confidence, recruiting was slow, and for the rest of 1916, the Corps enlisted less than 1,000 Marines and commissioned zero officers. When the United States officially declared war on Germany, the strength had only increased by 20%. The Department of the Navy didn't share the same initiative as a commandant. When they released the new Navy regulations at the end of 1916, it didn't seem like they expected Marines to serve on the front lines during the Great War. The guidelines outline the duties of the Corps. Quote, to provide detachments for certain vessels of the Navy, to garrison regular Navy yards and naval stations, both within and without the continental limits of the United States, to defend, when necessary, naval stations beyond the continental limits of the United States, to provide a force of Marines for seizing and defending advanced naval bases in time of war, to help garrison the Canal Zone, and to furnish such garrisons and expeditionary forces for duty beyond the seas as might be necessary in time of peace. Unquote. 
The entire Marine Corps was needed to support the mission outlined in the new regulations. And nowhere did it specifically mention war in Europe. The lack of guidance resulted in most officers having little idea what their mission was as the war approached, so they focused on the duties outlined in the regulation. Most Marines thought that if the U.S. declared war, the Corps would serve as guards to support Navy shore establishments, mostly on the east coast of the United States. They imagined sending only a few thousand Marines to Europe to seize and hold advanced bases for the Navy. But as Marines would soon find out, in addition to their duties outlined in the Navy regulations, their expertise would also be needed on the front lines. Even though the United States was an ocean away from the war zone in Europe, U.S. citizens were concerned about a possible invasion. Throughout World War I, the request for Marines to serve as guards at naval shore stations grew significantly. The Marine Corps did everything it could to meet those demands. By the time World War I was over, the number of establishments guarded by Marines increased to 75, most of which were new radio stations and commercial cable and telegraph offices used during the war. The number of troops needed to guard the new post was substantial, and it required 250 officers and 7,788 enlisted. This was equal to the entire pre-war numbers of the Corps. Marines also had the responsibility of guarding German ships confiscated by the United States. One of these ships was the scene of the first shot fired by a U.S. troop during World War I, and the credit of the first shot goes to the Marines, albeit it's not a very heroic story. In 1914, the German cruiser Cormoran was chased into the harbor of Guam by Allied vessels. The U.S. captured the ship, but only partially disarmed it. The German crew was allowed to stay on board, and they lived relatively peacefully amongst the Marines for the next two years. As the war escalated, many people on the island started to become nervous, and with good reason. The German crew was about the same size as the U.S. forces in Guam, and they still had a partially weaponized ship. Hours after the United States declared war, Marines and sailors headed to the German ship with orders to take the crew prisoner and commandeer the ship. A U.S. representative boarded and demanded the Germans surrender. They lowered their colors, but as soon as the boarding officer left, the Germans raised their flag and blew up the ships themselves. It sank within minutes. When the Germans made it to shore, the captain ordered one of the crew to demolish the engines. An engineer picked up a huge sledgehammer and made his way towards the engine. A Marine standing guard saw the scenario unfolding from a distance. He wasn't sure what was going on, so he picked up his rifle and aimed it at the German engineer. Just as he pulled the trigger, a Marine officer yanked the muzzle away from its target and the shot missed its mark. The rescued Germans were made prisoners of war and they were escorted by Marines to an Army prison camp at Fort Douglas, Utah. As we came closer to entering the war, it became clear that Marines needed to be used as more than guards. The Corps had established a reputation of an elite force that could turn the tide of battle in both small and large conflicts. The Commander-in-Chief recognized this unique skill set and began to incorporate the Marine Corps in pre-war planning. 
In every major war the United States had engaged in, the Marine Corps had fought alongside the U.S. Army. It was so common that Congress had passed an act that authorized the President to order Marines to duty with the Army whenever he saw fit. But before the United States entered the war, the Navy resisted using Marines in this capacity. They were adamant that Marines should exclusively be assigned to Navy duties, and the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Benson, recommended against assigning Marines to the Army. The Commandant of the Marine Corps argued otherwise. He felt that Marines were needed on the Western Front and pictured them as a necessary component to the expeditionary force sent to France. He planned for 7,000 Marines to join the U.S. Army for expeditionary duty in Europe. The Navy's appeal was ultimately ignored and on May 16th, the Secretary of War requested a regiment of Marines to serve as infantry in France. Eleven days later, President Wilson ordered the regiment to serve with the Army. The first regiment organized was the 5th Regiment of Marines, known as the Fighting 5th. This regiment was rapidly formed from companies at different posts and ship detachments throughout the globe. The 5th Regiment was officially activated on June 8, 1917, and was made up of 70 officers and 2,689 enlisted, about one-sixth of the enlisted strength of the Corps. These Marines would be one of the first American Expeditionary Force contingents to arrive in France. The 1st Battalion arrived on June 27th on the USS Henderson, DeKalb, and the Hancock. Shortly after, the 6th Regiment assembled in Quantico on July 11th. The War Department authorized a brigade of Marines on September 20th to replace an Army's brigade. The 6th Regiment and the 6th Machine Gun Battalion joined the 5th Marines in France on October 5th. Two and a half weeks later, they were organized into the 4th Brigade and commanded by General Charles Doyen. The 4th Brigade of Marines made up one of the two infantry brigades in the Army's 2nd Division. This sudden need forced the Marine Corps to step up its recruiting. At the beginning of 1917, the Marine Corps launched their famous First to Fight recruiting campaign. Due to the large number of volunteers, the Corps didn't have to lower their standards, and they recruited the cream of the crop. The standards were stringent. A man needed to be between 18 to 36 years old, they couldn't be shorter than 5 foot 5 inches, or taller than 6 foot 2. Recruits had to weigh more than 130 pounds, and had to be of steady and regular habits, unmarried with no one relying on him for support, good health, and not addicted to alcohol or drugs. There were few who met these requirements, and almost 80% of volunteers were identified as unfit for duty. In April 1917, 14,607 tried to become Marines. Only 2,864 made it. Not only were these recruits in great physical shape, but many of them were highly educated. Marines were recruited from Yale, Harvard, Cornell, and there was even an instance of 300 students from the University of Minnesota volunteering for enlistment. One Marine officer stated, quote, 60% of the entire regiment, mark this, 60% of them were college men. Two-thirds of an entire company came straight from the University of Minnesota.
Unquote. Another officer said, quote, If we had the opportunity to pick men individually from the United States, I doubt whether we can have much better. There were as fine of a bunch of upstanding American athletes as you can meet, and they had brains as well as bronze. Recruits from all social classes tried to enlist, and the Corps filled their quota within weeks. Temporary recruiting stations were set up in Philadelphia and Norfolk to handle the increased load. The Marine Corps would also see a growth in officers, and within four months, the number of commissioned troops doubled. At its peak, there were 374 Marine Corps recruiting stations staffed with 26 officers and 428 enlisted, and significant effort went into training Marines. Recruit depots in Paris Island, South Carolina, and Mar Island, California, were expanded to handle the incoming Marines. The vast majority of recruits trained at Paris Island, and the training Marines received throughout the United States wasn't the same. Some went to boot camp for eight weeks, while others went for 12. Large temporary camps were built to help the influx of incoming troops, and all of Paris Island was eventually acquired for housing and training. Recruits slept in canvas tents infested with bugs and rodents. As one recruit describes, quote, I thought they had landed us on an island for the insane, but later I was told it was the old quarantine camp, unquote. Whenever new men came on the island, the saltier recruits would welcome them with SOL, or shit out of luck. They were also met by drill instructors, and the colorful description by a recruit depicted them perfectly. Quote, The instructors were old Marines, the tall, straight-mustached professionals who dressed their pride in gaudy blue uniforms, decorated their bodies with salty tattoos, fed their thirst with chewing tobacco, frequently dipped snuff, assuaged fatigue with whiskey, cursed with the metric vigor of Kipling, drilled their troops night and day, held frequent and demanding inspections, and knew everything there was to know about the Springfield 1903 rifle, unquote. Two weeks of boot camp were dedicated to marksmanship training. This was a skill Marines took to heart, and on top of bragging rights, superb marksmanship skills came with the reward. If a Marine qualified as expert, they would receive an extra $5 per month in his paycheck. Marksmanship has always been a source of pride for Marines, and during the first year of World War I, this skill amazed European allies and as we'll discuss in future episodes, earned praise in many of their status reports. Boot camp was tough and transformed men into warriors, physically and mentally. A Marine recounts, quote, The first day of camp, I was afraid I was going to die. The next two weeks, my sole fear was that I wasn't going to die. And after, I knew that I would never die, because I had become so hard that nothing could kill me. Unquote. As the war progressed, French and British troops would help train Marines by teaching them trench warfare, bayonet training, and even simulated gas attacks. Another big topic drill instructors focused on was the history of the Corps. History is big in the Marine Corps. It was in 1917, and it still is today. Tradition is one of our greatest strengths, and our values, morals, and culture all derive from Marines' actions in the past. 
The development of Paris Island during World War I cost the Corps $4 million, equivalent to $86 million today. More than 46,000 Marines passed through Paris Island during the war. The Commandant surpassed his goal of doubling the size of the Corps, admittedly with the help of patriotic volunteers. During 1917, most of the world focused on the Western Front as the primary target. However, the U.S. Navy was concerned about the serious possibility of the German fleet reaching the Atlantic Ocean if the British should fail in the North Sea. They started to focus on the newly constructed Panama Canal, which allowed quick passage between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. The Navy ordered the Corps to organize troops for an advanced base force, and 360 officers and 7,598 enlisted were assembled. The unit consisted of a headquarter organization with an aerial company, an armored car company, signal and engineer companies, two submarine mine companies, two searchlight companies, a mobile artillery force comprised of a battalion of light artillery, a battalion of medium artillery, two anti-aircraft batteries, and a brigade of infantry who brought along with them four batteries of 5-inch heavy howitzers as defense. But despite the significant resources dedicated to the task, the German fleet never tried to make its way to sea. And according to the Marine Corps, quote, The advanced base force proved to be an organization which served only to keep men from more actively participating in the war, unquote. As the war progressed, the use of artillery by Marines was challenged by the War Department. Marine artillery units trained at Quantico with the hopes of fighting in France. But the War Department specifically stated that artillery would be the responsibility of the U.S. Army. On August 23rd, they requested that all naval guns and howitzers in construction specifically for the Marine Corps be turned over to the U.S. Army because, quote, Soldiers had been trained for those weapons, which were urgently needed in the war zone. Unquote. The Commandant didn't take too kindly to that request, and he objected to the decision. He was able to keep the artillery pieces in the Corps, but heavy artillery units wouldn't see active service in the war. The Marines serving at sea also started to see some change. In April 1917, 35 officers and 1,805 enlisted served on board 35 naval vessels. To account for the number of Allied ships sunk by German submarines, the U.S. ordered every possible ship to prepare for war and began an extensive shipbuilding program. The number of Navy recruits grew significantly, and many naval vessels were used solely for training seamen. The size of the crew for some ships doubled, and to make room for incoming sailors, Nine detachments of Marines were booted and sent to Quantico. But the increased number of ships also required experienced Marines to serve as guards. And as a result, the number of Marines at sea stayed about the same throughout the war. A division of United States battleships, commanded by Rear Admiral Rodman, joined the British Grand Fleet in the North Sea in November 1917. The ships in this division consisted of the New York, Wyoming, Florida, Delaware, Arkansas, and the Texas. Every one of those ships had Marines on board. The sailors and Marines serving in the North Sea fought against the enemy, and they helped defend vessels that were laying the North Sea Mine Barrage, 
a large minefield to the east of the Orkney Islands in Norway to stop German U-boats from traveling into shipping lanes. A naval headquarters was established, and Admiral Sims in London controlled all naval activities in European waters. A detachment of Marines was assigned as guards for the American embassy there. This naval fleet provided an integral role in the success of the United States during World War I. In addition to helping the Allied powers defend against German vessels, they also supported troops fighting in France. The size of the American expeditionary force required a tremendous amount of coal and other fuel to support its efforts in Europe. A fleet of ships from the Great Lakes was sent to Europe specifically to transport coal from Cardiff, Wales to ports throughout France. The 136th Company of Marines was stationed at Cardiff in September 1918 to protect operations. They stayed there until July 1919. The Marine Corps anticipated Congress would authorize more Marines to the front lines, and the significant number of troops recruited allowed the Corps to prepare for this request. In addition to the 4th Brigade already in country, the Corps organized the 5th Brigade. By the end of 1918, the Marine Corps reached an all-time high with 75,101 officers and enlisted men, and 269 female reservists. The 5th Brigade consisted of the 11th Regiment commanded by Colonel George Van Orden, the 13th commanded by Colonel Smedley Butler, and the 5th Machine Gun Battalion under Major Perkins. They were sent to Europe, but wouldn't have the same legacy as the 4th Brigade. When General John Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Forces on the Western Front, received the news of the 5th Brigade coming to France, he wasn't sure how he should use them. The War Department instructed him that the 5th should be used as he saw fit, and Pershing assigned them to the commanding general of the Service of Supply for guard duty. Many Marines consider this humiliating. The 13th Marines were split up and assigned as guards through the western coast of France, and many detachments guarded supply facilities around Saint-Nazaire. The 1st Battalion was stationed around Bordeaux and protected the docks, camps, and supply facilities. Even the machine gun company was assigned to guard duty. Despite being just as qualified as the 4th Brigade, the 5th spent most of its time serving as guards. At the start of the war, Navy and Marine Corps aviation was still in its infancy. The Navy first started experimenting with planes in 1911, and on May 2, 1912, the first Marine officer was assigned to naval aviation. This trailblazer was First Lieutenant Alfred A. Cunningham, who was regarded as the father of Marine Corps aviation. When the U.S. declared war on Germany, Four Marine officers and 30 enlisted received aviation training in Pensacola. This tiny group of Marines were transferred to Philadelphia and organized into the Marine Aeronautic Company. During its first six months, it grew to 34 officers and 330 enlisted. On October 12th, it was split into the 1st Marine Aviation Squadron and the 1st Marine Aeronautic Company. Cunningham was ordered to study the war zone for any opportunities for aviation bombardment, specifically targeting German submarine bases. In January 1918, he recommended four Marine Corps squadrons be sent to the Strait of Dover in the English Channel, 
A total of 109 officers and 657 enlisted were sent to the Northern Bombing Group, and they arrived on July 31st. However, their planes wouldn't show up for another two months. While they waited for their equipment, Navy and Marine Corps pilots used British planes. But despite this effort, the Marine Corps only made one raid on the submarine base. After the attack, the Germans began to withdraw their vessels, and they abandoned their submarine base. This move left the Northern Bombing Group without a mission, and the group started to support the American Expeditionary Force in France. They were assigned to the British Army and remained there for the rest of the war, attacking rear area targets and stopping any retreat by the German Army. Four Marine pilots were killed during operations. Ralph Talbot, one of the officers killed, was memorialized in 1936 by having a destroyer named after him. Marine Corps aviation also experimented with balloons. Barrage balloons protected ground troops from aircraft attacks by causing enemy pilots to navigate through obstacles, making their approach more difficult. A balloon company was organized in Quantico in June 1918, and they trained with the heavy artillery units for the rest of the war. But like heavy artillery, they were never sent to France. Marine Corps aviation grew from its tiny origin to a size of 280 officers and 2,200 enlisted, and by November 11, 1918, had over 340 aircraft. Although aviation units weren't extensively used during World War I, their training and lessons were valuable for future wars. By the end of the war, 31,000 Marines reported for duty with the Army in France. Most Marine Corps officers serving in the Corps before the war received promotions to at least major. However, not many of them saw combat. Infantry units in the field didn't require senior Marine officers, and as a result, the majority served in administrative roles. Only one-sixth of officers, with two or fewer years' experience in the Corps, had any combat experience. But the officers who did serve on the front lines did so with distinction. In addition to the expansion of Marines, the Navy began to increase its chaplains and medical corps to support efforts in Europe. Chaplains served on naval vessels for years before World War I kicked off. However, only one was ever assigned to the Marine Corps, and that didn't happen until November 19, 1916. Chaplain Edmund A. Broadman served with the Marines until 1917. The Chaplain Corps considers this an important milestone between the United States Marine Corps and the United States Navy. Quote, His tour of duty marks the beginning of the unbroken connection of Navy chaplains with the Marine Corps. Unquote. Each regiment of the 4th Brigade had one Roman Catholic and one Protestant chaplain. A total of 13 chaplains served with Marines in France and participated in every major engagement. Four of them received the Navy Cross for their service. Corpsmen also started to integrate with the Corps. The Navy always had medical officers, but they didn't establish formalized training until 1842 where the Navy set up the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. After the Civil War, the need for medical care on the battlefield was recognized, and the Medical Corps was created as a separate entity within the Navy in 1871. Enlisted hospital corpsmen were officially recognized with the creation of the Hospital Corps on June 17, 1898. 
the Naval Act of 1916 significantly increased the Navy Medical Organization. Although corpsmen supported Marines on ship before, World War I marked a new challenge for them. They never supported Marines during a prolonged land campaign, and this new battlefront changed the focus of the Medical Corps. Instead of treating Marines for routine illnesses and non-fatal injuries, corpsmen were now responsible for attending to wounded Marines on the battlefield. Each Marine regiment had seven medical officers, three dental surgeons, and 48 hospital corpsmen during World War I. Each Marine Corps company fighting on the front lines had two to four corpsmen assigned to them. 300 Navy medical personnel served with the 4th Brigade in every combat operation and treated more than 13,000 casualties. They suffered 18 killed, and 165 of them were casualties of chemical warfare. As Marines, there are few we invite into the Corps with open arms. Chaplains and corpsmen are considered part of the Corps, and in the bloody battlefields of France during World War I is where this camaraderie was born. Corpsmen received half of the Medal of Honors awarded at Belleau Wood, and a total of six Medals of Honor during the war. After World War I, Marine General Thomas Holcomb stated, quote, The naval medical personnel who served in the 4th Marine Brigade acquitted themselves with exemplary honor. They won for their corps and branch of service a record of war accomplishments ranking high in naval history. Unquote. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head to the Western Front and start breaking down battles, starting with the famous Bella Wood. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is A Naval History of World War I by Paul Halpern. I'm sure, as you could have guessed from the title, this is another book about the navies in World War I. Halpern provides another great look at what the navies were doing during the Great War and goes beyond operations in the North Sea. From the Baltic and Black Sea engagements to major colonial campaigns, this book examines how naval battles contributed to the war. The author also discusses many strategies used during World War I, something that I particularly have a strong interest for. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory to download this audiobook for free and receive a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. And whether you decide to continue your membership with Audible, this book is yours to keep. Forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.